couple months now. And if you're just picking up with us, um, there's a lot of ways we can think about Ecclesiastes, but one way is to see a search for satisfaction. It's a, a wise man, the wisest man who ever lived, and we're getting a glimpse worth living for. Something that will satisfy his soul as he spends his days here in this world under the sun as he describes it. Is there anything out there that's worth living for, that's worth spending your life on? Is there anything that is enough that can actually offer rest to our souls in a weary world? It's easy to see that these questions are just as relevant to us as they were to Solomon. And in our passage today, we're going to see him consider wealth as an option. Is wealth perhaps something that's worth pouring your life into? Is that perhaps what could satisfy? It's a compelling option for, it's been a compelling option for people for a long time. It's not hard to look around and see people chase wealth. Following the money almost always tends to shed light on what's going on in the situation. You know, one of the biggest stated reasons for divorce is money issues. Um, when I was going through my training in the Marines, we learned that one of the, the number one reason people share classified information is not because of the ideological change, it's because of money, right? Money is a huge driving factor in human behavior and what we do. Now, as we look at the teacher here in Ecclesiastes, as we look at his examination of wealth, we're going to see that money cannot provide the satisfaction that we need. It cannot satisfy our souls. But even as he kind of devastates that as an option, he's going to leave breadcrumbs for us. Breadcrumbs that lead us to where we should actually be looking. To where rest and satisfaction can be found. And then how that in turn transforms the way we relate to wealth and our material goods. So let's go ahead and read. Uh, we're going to do a long passage today, it's a, but it's all about the same thing. He spends a lot of time on this issue. Um, we're going to start in Ecclesiastes 5.8, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. So hang with me. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. And in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost and nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his day vexation in sickness and in anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Mankind 
a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's born child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who know for the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving. Give us soft hearts, uh, ears that are ready to hear it. Um, Lord, that we would be willing to be changed by it, not to tailor it to fit what we want it to say, to fit as, us as we are, but uh, to be shaped and changed as we need to. Father, help us. Um, help us today. In the name of Christ, we pray. And not provide the satisfaction that our souls long for at all. Uh, and I'm just going to kind of run through some of the, the ways he draws this out and shows that wealth is not the answer, not on the individual level, but just at the, the governmental societal level. And he says, you know, one of the problems with wealth is that at the government, much, much less, right? It works it all the way down to where the poor are being taken advantage of. And they would probably take advantage of somebody too, if they could. But it just looks about how as wealth increases, as you gain more, more hands show up to consume it, right? It's just magic. Like you have more wealth and then all of a sudden this is freeloaders. This is interesting coming from Solomon's perspective because he had a massive household. Some people estimate that his, his household was up to 35,000 people. It's a lot of people, right? That, that's a massive undertaking between servants and a household, right? So he's talking about this natural thing of as we gain more, all of a sudden people start showing up and they want some of it, right? They just gravitate. So that happens. So that's a problem with wealth, right? And then when we get into 6.1, he talks about how this problem of having it, but being unable to enjoy. We look at this. He talks about how you can have stuff, but you're unable to enjoy it. It's there, but it brings you no pleasure. It doesn't satisfy anything in you. But other people kind of mooch off your wealth and they enjoy it. So you're sitting there with it and you can't enjoy it while you're watching others take joy in what you've worked and striven and throwing yourself into providing. It's almost more frustrating seeing somebody else enjoy it when you can't make yourself do it. And he goes on to say that your life on, it really doesn't matter what happens, right? You can have a hundred children. That's, that's a sign of a ton of blessing, right? In, in, especially in the, the culture that we're talking about in scripture, children are a blessing. So I have a hundred kids this is incredible, right? This is, and then you talk about a long life saying, even if you live 2000 years and have a hundred kids, if you can't enjoy anything, right? If you can't find joy in the way that you spend your days, if you can't enjoy what is provided to you, it's no good. Even these great blessings are no good if you cannot find joy that he says it would be better to have been stillborn, right? It would have been better to never have actually had anything because it's harder to have stuff and not enjoy it than to never have tasted it. It's pretty stark. And he kind of caps it off in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 7, where he says, you do all this effort to be satisfied. All this effort is to satisfy your appetites, and it doesn't do it. It doesn't do it. All this, we might be initially tempted to think that wealth itself is the problem, right? That there's a problem with money. There's a problem with wealth. 
This passage also talks about the lack of wealth. Right? If wealth is the problem, if you got rid of it, then everything's fixed. Okay, no money, no, no, money, no problems. But that's not what happens. Lack of wealth causes just as much heartache. Wealth is not the answer, but wealth also is not the problem. He goes into what is grievous and vain about losing it. He talks about this man who worked and he built up all these riches and then he loses it in a bad investment, particularly maritime ships and things like that. And so this was, you can easily picture this being, you know, you invested in a shipment of something and the ship goes down. It's, it's gone, right? For us, it'd be, you know, stocks maybe, you know, stock market taking a crash, something like that. Um, and that's, you know, the, he looks at this and says, that's grievous. You worked, you did all this work for this wealth and then all of a sudden, poof, it's wiped out. Right? It's just gone. It's fleeting, right? That's part one of the problems with it, right? It's that you can't count on it. It can disappear. <laughs> Even think about what's gone on in the world this past week, right? With governments able to, to freeze accounts, right? Whether it's Russia or Canada, like we've, we've seen this manipulation with money. Like this is a real thing. Like all, one, money, one day you're a rich oligarch in Russia, the next day you have access to nothing. Right? Things are, are fleeting. And in a lot of ways, it hurts worse to have had it and lost it than if you never had it at all. In verse 14, it all talks, also talks about not only does he, he lose his wealth in this accident or however this investment went bad, now he has nothing to leave to his son. This is a big deal, particularly in Proverbs talks a lot about this, about the, the virtue of leaving something to your children, how that, how that is a good thing and something we should pursue. And so this is a equally devastating. It's one thing to lose it for yourself, but now to not be able to discharge that duty that a good parent would do to leave a legacy to their child just compounds the pain. And then to cap it all off, even if you don't, even if that doesn't happen, right? Even if you manage to hold on to it and not lose it here, you're going to die. And what do you get to take with you? Not a thing. All your work, all your effort, all your striving, your 401k, all your crypto, all your real estate, none of it gets to go with you. You go to the grave the same way you came in. You return to dust. Even if you play all your cards right here, you still end up empty-handed at the end of the day. And Solomon says, that's grievous. That's vain. That's futile. It's, it's a vapor to be this way. And again, it just piles on to the fact that, that clearly wealth does not satisfy and really sums up the life of the one who's... who's Eggs are in this basket, right? Who is looking for satisfaction in the pursuit of wealth and what wealth can offer. It says, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. I think eating in darkness refers to primarily loneliness. He's by himself, right? He's, he's kind of cut off everybody around him to, to facilitate this pursuit of and then there's so much, and then there's this vexation. This is being anxious. This is being fearful. This is being stressed out, right? This happens, right? When I was a kid and I didn't have any money and I didn't have any bills, money wasn't very stressful. Then I became a grown-up. And it's way more stressful to have money than it was when I didn't have money, right? There, there are these cares that come with that. There's the threat that it could be lost. Am I making the right decisions? Do I have enough? All these things get piled on. It, doesn't, it brings the opposite of rest, 
It brings the stress and tension, even to the point where physically affecting your health. Now, this could be a reference to back then when you were rich, you didn't have to do manual labor. So, and then you would eat rich foods and it was just generally unhealthy. But that anger, right? You get angry at everybody who threatens your wealth, all these people who want something from it, all these things. There's so much of our anger that can be traced back to having something that's ours threatened, somebody wanting to draw on it. Somebody, this whole long section is meant to build a devastating case that, that wealth cannot satisfy. All right, if that's what you look at, to look to, to find rest for your soul, it will not do it. But in the middle, and, and this is kind of how how Hebrews structured a lot of times is the main points in the middle rather than the end. That's how we kind of work. We kind of work linearly. They work differently. All right, in the middle, we find the main point, and he talks about how we should handle our wealth. And it's kind of odd because it almost seems like it directly contradicts this, right? Let's read it again. After he spilled so much ink about the vanity of wealth, this is his conclusion in chapter 5, verse 18. He says, Behold, what have I seen to be good and fitting? is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. So we just get done hearing about how wealth and money and all this stuff, it can't satisfy. There's all these problems with it. You should enjoy the things you have. Like, but you just said that it doesn't, it doesn't work, right? So after he said all that, what's, what's changed? How do we reconcile these two things? How do we reconcile the vanity of looking for your rest and your hope and wealth and this encouragement to enjoy the things we have as a gift of God. Well, the first thing we need to understand is that and pointless and causes the problem. It's the fact that we're seeking satisfaction for our souls in the wealth. Those are two very different things. And this is really, really important. Wealth itself is not bad. Wealth comes from God. He created everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Wealth is his thing. Nothing good comes from Satan. Wealth is, is God's God's product, right? It is not bad. But to ask it to provide safety and joy for our souls is asking too much of it. That's not what it is designed. That is what's vanity. That is what's futile. That's what's chasing after the wind. That's what just disappears as soon as you try to grab it. The problem is not with the money. The problem is with our hearts and what our hearts do with money. It's our relationship to wealth that's broken and can leave us devastated. And the New Testament affirms this, right? In 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul writes this. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's not money. It's the love of money. Let's look at Jesus in Matthew 6.24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, it's not the money that's wrong. It's not the wealth that's the problem. It's the loving it. It's the serving it. That's what wrecks us. That's the devastating thing. That's the thing 
that kills our soul. That's what's vain and futile and doesn't deliver. Money is dangerous because it does a pretty good impression of something that can actually satisfy. Right? It, it, it promises a lot. It seems to give access to, to two things that our souls really want and need. Protection, safety, and comfort. Right? Money seems to provide some insulation from bad things, right? Something bad happens with your health. If you have money, you can get good doctors. Right? If you get into legal trouble, you can get good lawyers. Right? It, it seems to provide this insurance against the downsides of life. So it seems to offer safety, right? It seems to offer that to us. And it also seems to offer, on the, well, the plus side, it seems to offer us comforts and pleasures, right? We can buy food we like with it. We can go to fun things. We can do whatever we want to, right? It gives us access to all these things that we can pursue to find joy and comfort. Right? So it, it seems like it gives, offers those things, but it can't actually deliver what we need. But it looks like it can. And yet for all that, we are still encouraged to enjoy these material pleasures that God has given us as a gift from him. So what changed? What's the shift in the relationship that changes these material possessions from something actually really dangerous and toxic for your soul into something that you not only can enjoy, but you should enjoy. What shifts? Well, the key thing is to realize that pride and content in this world is in finding our satisfaction outside of it. The, The ability to be satisfied and content in this world is only found when we find our ultimate satisfaction outside of it. It's so interesting. If you look at the structure of this passage, God shows up nowhere in the long chunk of the beginning and at the long chunk of the end. The only place he is is in that little middle part that we're talking about now. And he shows up six times there. Right? So the whole beginning about the futility of wealth, no God. Solomon is looking at life under the sun. God's out of the picture. I'm running after wealth. The second part, he's looking at that again. But that middle part, suddenly God shows up and he's all over it. Right? These things, these material things are a gift from God. The ability to enjoy them is a gift from God. It's all a gift from God. That's what changes everything, right? That's what, this is where that shift begins to happen. Right? Our enjoyment of what as a gift from God. And how is it that God allows us to enjoy these material blessings? The real key thing, right? How is it that God allows us to enjoy? How does he give us that gift of enjoyment? We said the wealth itself is not the thing. It's it's enjoyment of it. Well, he does it by providing what our souls actually need, right? By freeing us from needing more from that wealth than it can actually deliver. That safety, that security that we want from wealth, that's actually something, right? And that comfort, those positive things that we want wealth to do for us, that's actually a reflection of a real spiritual on our own. That is a fact. We are not okay. We are sinners who are answerable to a whole safe. And there is no comfort for us in and of ourselves. That is how we stand. So that longing for safety, for security, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. And that's the real problem, right? It's the fact that we are sinners that stand under the judgment of a holy God. 
But that is the safety that we need. We need safety from the judgment of God. Right? Our own. So where is real safety found? Right? What can actually make us safe? Wealth doesn't do it. Jesus does it. Jesus is the one who makes us safe. It's his work for us that actually makes our souls safe. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is what he came to do. And he did it by living that perfect, righteous life, right? By giving you the righteousness that you need to stand before God. He came to live that out and to give that to you and then to die for all of your failures. And when you are joined to him by faith, all that he has done, all that he has earned and won becomes yours. And we can say with Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing you, once you are united to Christ, you are utterly, completely, totally safe in the only way that absolutely matters, that we need, right? It's not the safety of being able to pay for lawyers and doctors and buy something new and get the house you want. That's not the safety we need. Those are counterfeits. Those are fake things that we do to, that we have for the safety is true, but we have to get to the real safety that we need, right? The safety from the judgment of a holy God. We need righteousness in order to be safe. Righteousness and atonement that Jesus has provided. So that's the project, protection and the safety, but there's also, we also long for good things, right? We don't just want to be protected from downside. We want to enjoy things, right? We want, we want upside too. And we have that in Christ as well. Lots of passages we could look at for that, but I think one of the best is in Revelation 21. We read this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is the comfort that we need, right? We need a world. We need a whole new world where all the effects of sin are stripped away, where there's no more death, no more mourning, no more sorrow. All that is gone. And where we drink from the spring of the water of life without cost because Jesus has paid the cost. That is what we have in Jesus. That is the satisfaction that our souls long for. This is why it can't be found in wealth. Wealth is a cheap knockoff of what Jesus has provided for us, of what Jesus has done for us. When our safety and comfort are found where they're supposed to be found, in the perfect, finished work of Jesus, our Savior, then we don't have to look for them in things that can't provide them. Right? Suddenly I'm free from having to chase wealth in that same way. I don't need that from it anymore. Food and drink and my work, my vocation that God's called me to, I'm now free to enjoy them with those. There's nothing really truly riding on them anymore. I don't need them for anything. Right? You can strip it all away, and I am still good. Or you can give me all of it, and it's great. I'll enjoy it, right? Because you don't need it anymore, because of all that you have in Christ, you are, 
and to love your neighbor with it and to serve the advance of the gospel with it, right? That's what these things are for, and you're free to do it because of the work of Jesus. We see this reflected in a couple places in the New Testament really well. Paul in 1 Timothy says this, but godliness with contain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content. With contentment is great gain. The freedom that we have in Christ is to simply enjoy whatever he's given to us. If he has given us good things, we enjoy them as a gift from him, and we honor and praise him, and we give him gratitude for what he's given us. If he has given us less, we're still okay. Right? So, so this is the key. This is how we can have contentment. This next thing. And constantly looking for more. Right? And this applies beyond money. It's important that you guys see this. But this can be anything temporal. You can do this with your health. Right? We've got a lot of folks who struggle with chronic health things. And people have had really serious health stuff the last couple of years. Right? If you need your health to be, if that's the thing that's going to make you okay, feeling good, being healthy, getting fixed, you will chase it and chase it and chase it and chase it, and you will never be satisfied. Something will get a little better, and it won't be enough, and you'll have to chase the next thing, and that won't be enough. It won't satisfy your soul. It won't replace what Jesus can do. Is it good when you feel better? Voice in it. Celebrate it by all means. Christians are not masochists. We rejoice when God does good things like that. But they are no longer the thing that we have to chase to be okay. We can do this with our relationships, right? If, if, if my husband would change to be this way, if my kids would be like this, right, then I'd be okay. And then they change. Oh, that's not enough. Like, it's got to be something else. We will just run things into the ground and nothing will ever be enough. If this would change this way, then it, would be it, it won't ever happen. It will happen with nothing in this world. It will just... Anything will. The only thing that can actually satisfy your soul and bring you rest is the work of Jesus. And once he does, when you rest there, you get all these things back the way that you're supposed to, right? You get to enjoy a good meal with friends just as a gift from God, a thing to do. Enjoy it, savor it. If your health gets better, enjoy it, savor it. If a relationship gets better, enjoy it, savor it. It's okay. You don't have to be devastated. Your hope is not in that thing. What we do have, we enjoy as a gift. Paul, in Philippians 4.11, he said this. I'm not saying this. He's, he was writing to the Philippians, thanking them for caring for him physically, to send him money to continue his work. And he says, I'm not saying this, not thanking you for this, because I'm in need, because I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in, every, in, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Turns out Philippians 4.13 is not about playing sports well. <laughs> it's about being content in whatever lot God deals you. Right? We are going to have people in our church who are very, very well off materially, and we will have people who are in need. And some of us will be both of those people, right? Like, that's, that's going to happen. Our contentment doesn't ride on that. It rides on the finished, perfect work of Jesus. When we do not, 
What we do have, we enjoy as a gift, and what we do not have doesn't need to grieve us anymore because what we truly need cannot be lost. It cannot be lost. It is secure in Jesus. I want to wrap it up with this longish quote from C.S. Lewis that I think really captures pretty much exactly what we're talking about here. He said this, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that, that, that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not feel after my death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main objective of my country and to help others do the same. Church, we cannot let our vision get stuck under the sun. Anything you chase, anything you look to in this world to satisfy you will absolutely, without fail, come up short. And it will devastate you. It will wreck you. It will wreck you. And Jesus will do the exact opposite. He will never disappoint you. He will never come up short. He will never not meet what you need. It can be so tempting to look down, to focus in on the things of this world. The pain of this world, the brokenness of sin, makes the temporary dopamine shots of the things here really tempting sometimes, right? Sometimes this world is really, really painful, and it feels like a little bit more money, a little bit better relationships, a little bit better health would really, that would change the game. And if you get them, they're a great gift, but they don't change the game. And if you think they will, they will just disappoint you more. Church, in, in love, I just want to warn you away from that. This world cannot satisfy you. These things are good gifts, but they were not meant to do that. We have to look only to Christ. What he has provided, he alone is sufficient to satisfy you. He alone is sufficient to give you rest. Rest that will hold up whether you are in peace or at war, whether you are well or sick, whether you are rich or poor, whether you have friends or whether you're alone. Christ will be enough. Christ will satisfy Christ alone will give you rest.